he had some psychological insight and he knew exactly what he was saying to these victims when he made these comments and especially just prior to leaving he made comments that he i'm pretty sure he knew was going to instill fear in in their lives for the rest of their lives um just the the kind of the stalking nature i know where i know where you live you know i live down the street um, I could be the guy at the grocery store and some of the victims, they did have issues with, um, you know, seeing, uh, specifically one victim saw a man wink at her at a grocery store and they dropped the milk that they oh, were wow. holding because it just instilled instant fear in them. Um, because could that be the guy? It was just it was sick in nature for sure. I am Anne-Marie Schubert and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. We also examine unique techniques, innovative ideas, and inspirational stories that come out of these cases. Today, we're going to talk about one of those cases, and that is what I call People versus John Doe, also known as People versus Mark Mantufel. This case was perhaps one of Sacramento's most prolific serial rape cases in Sacramento history, an individual who eluded capture for nearly three decades. In this episode, we will focus on the innovative ways that we use to charge somebody using their DNA as a descriptor, as well as the use of genetic genealogy to ultimately identify and capture this rapist. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Assistant Chief Deputy Amy Holliday, Sacramento Sheriff's Office, retired cold case investigator, Mickey Links, and Sacramento Police Department Detective, Sean McGovern. Welcome everybody. Thank you for joining me today. And if I can just start off, maybe I'll start with Amy, if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and what your assignment is. Sure, good morning. Um, My name is Amy Holliday. I'm an Assistant Chief Deputy with the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. I've been a prosecutor for 20 years as of yesterday. And um, I've, worked a lot of different types of cases, everything from misdemeanors to homicides. But uh, my my passion is the prosecution of of sexual assaults and homicides. Great. Thanks so much, Amy. Uh, Mickey, I'll turn it over to you. How about you? Good morning. I'm Mickey Links. I am retired sergeant with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. Um, I am currently, I came back right after retirement and uh, volunteer my time working homicide and sexual assault cold cases. So I've been working uh, almost 37 years now. Um, And I have a passion for these cases and I just love that we're starting to solve them uh, the way we are now. Excellent, thanks Mickey. And Sean, how about you? My name's Sean McGovern. I'm a detective with the Sacramento Police Department. I'm currently assigned to the homicide unit, but at the time of this investigation, I was working with the sex assault unit and I truly am passionate about complex cases and specifically uh, sex assault cases are one of my uh, passionate investigative um, passions that I have uh, for working in law enforcement. Um, So I was truly honored to be a part of this investigation. Great, thanks so much, Sean. So let's start off, first of all, just kind of talking about the crime spree spree that this case involved. And I'm gonna start with Mickey, first of all, because I think the first one that we know of occurred in 1992. And and for the listeners, I wanna just make sure folks understand that we're only gonna refer to the victims by their first name out of their privacy and in protecting their privacy. So Mickey, if you can start with the 1992 case that happened in the sheriff's jurisdiction. Yes, so uh, May 5th of 1992. So next month we're looking at um, 30 years ago, um, uh, our victim, Luetta, who was 52 years old at the time, uh, arrived home from work. Her home was in Rancho Cordova. She arrived home, drove into the uh, garage, closed the garage. She was a little late. She had a meeting that evening, so she was actually getting home about 830. Excuse me. Uh, She unlocked the door from the garage into the kitchen, uh, locked it as soon as she got into the house, 
Uh, Luetta had an alarm system on her house. Uh, she went to the keypad, um, entered the alarm code to disable the alarm. She walked around the house, it was warm. She started opening windows and, and sliding doors. Uh, as she walked down the hallway to her master bedroom, um, she was confronted by uh, a masked man um, wearing gloves. Uh, he had a ski mask on uh, covering his face, although she could see that uh, the eye holes and the mouth, um, and she could tell right away that it was a white male that was uh, in, the, uh, in her hallway. He immediately hit her several times in the head, uh, knocked her down, uh, ends up tying her feet and arms together. Um, she sustained a pretty significant um, injury on her head from him hitting her. And over the next few hours, uh, he repeatedly uh, sexually assaulted her. He took her into her bedroom. Um, he actually tied her legs uh, to the bed. Um, he would leave her for a little while, rummage through the house, looking for things. He would come back, um, sexually assault her again. Uh, I should say that he, he actually had uh, taped her eyes and her mouth uh, using some kind of clear duct tape and then actually put a pillowcase over her head. Um, this went on for several hours. He threatened to kill her. He told her that he lived nearby and would watch her so that if she called the cops, he would know that and he would come back and kill her. She told him she just wanted to call her daughter. Um, he eventually left. Um, I think we think he went out one of the doors. And at, at this point, even now, uh, it's unclear how he got into the house because the alarm had been set. Although uh, when crime scene investigators were there originally, uh, it did look like uh, maybe he made entry through the attic through an air conditioning unit up on, on the roof of the house. So. Um, Luetta called her daughter after she was sure that he was gone. She hadn't heard from him for about 10 minutes. Uh, he had actually moved the ties in front of her so she could uh, let herself go after he was gone. So she called her daughter and then they in turn called the police. So before I, I go to the SAC PD case, Mickey, um, you know, 37 years in this business, uh, is it a fair statement that these types of Home invasion, stranger rapes are very rare. Um, well, it's kind of funny you say that because um, they seem to be rare, and especially nowadays. But uh, back then in the 90s, actually, uh, we had the other series, um, The Second Story Rapist. Right. And uh, I worked patrol uh, during that time and, and was the first responder on a lot of those cases. Right. So we did have, um, back in that time, frame, we did have quite a few uh, series going on, and they were stranger, break in the house, sexually assault, um, and injure uh, these victims. Right. So, Sean, let's talk about the incident that happened a few years later in March of 94. Uh, we had another case, another stranger rape that was within SAC PD's jurisdiction. So maybe you can kind of walk the listeners through that. So in March... 23rd or March 23rd of 1994 um, victim Jerry she uh, was living by Sac State she was employed um, with Sacramento State University and was within walking distance of the university because it was truly um, uh, one of her loves uh, was the, the university and the students there um, so she had attended a um, a meeting uh, like a conference downtown and arrived home late in the evening at about uh, about 9 p.m. Um, it was kind of out of her norm. So uh, getting home later, but she had a, a garage that was towards the back of her property and it was detached. So she always entered her house through a rear sliding glass door. Uh, when she arrived home, she desperately had to use the restroom. And so she kind of rushed to get in and in the middle of rushing through, she realized that the slider was broken and it wasn't sliding properly. Um, and so she went through her back um, living room area. And uh, once she rounded the corner, she saw a male subject um, wearing a, a dark ski mask and 
um, as soon as she saw the subject, she was startled and um, attempted to talk to the person. And immediately she was barraged with strikes to her head. Um, she was thrown up against the hallway wall, which had a, a picture frame on the wall. Um, she shattered the, the glass and the picture frame. Um, ultimately, she ended up getting a, in this barrage of hits, she ended up with a skull fracture. Um, and so she was dazed and said she was feeling um, like she was seeing stars and she was about to, to go unconscious. Um, she put up a fight and ultimately he took her down to the ground and was yelling at her, giving her commands to stop fighting um which comes into play later on in in our investigation but uh he, he kind of gives her commands to to stop fighting him and then um ultimately he had pre uh, prior to the attack he had cut and prepared electrical cords um to bind her her feet and her wrists and so he ended up taking her into the front living room where uh, he bound her, uh, he finished binding her wrists and, and ankles and uh, proceeded to sexually assault her there in the front room. Um, from there, he walked around again, uh, similar to the Luetta case, he walked around the, the house uh, rummaging through items um, and kind of just did whatever he wanted in her house while she was uh, laying in the front. Uh, he ultimately moved her to the bedroom um, where he bound her to the bed um, and, and sexually assaulted her there again. Um, from there, he ended up uh, going to the bathroom and turning on the faucet in, in the uh, bathtub. And uh, Jerry could hear the bathtub being filled. And in her mind, she, she told me she made herself right um, for dying because she thought that the next thing he was going to do was gonna, going to kill her in the bathtub. Uh, he moved her to the bathtub and made her wash, um, which was interesting, uh, especially for the 90s. He, he had some forethought into trying to erase evidence um, mm -hmm. by having her wash and remove her clothing. He cut her clothing off, so she was, she was naked and uh, made her wash up. He then, um, similar to the Luetta case, he put... Uh, the bindings of her hands in front of her and asked her if she could get out if he left her uh, uh, after a, while, a period of time. Um, he made similar threats that he knew she, who she was and where she lived and that he would come back. Um, and so after that, um, Jerry could hear him leave out the front door. Um, she waited a period of time. Uh, to, to make sure that he had left and she was able to get out of her bindings. She grabbed a, a bath towel and then ran uh, to her garage to get into her car. Um, she drove frantically to a friend's house, a couple walks down the street, parked the car uh, in the middle of the lawn. Um, she was struggling with her head injury too. Now mind you, she fled in like a panic because she didn't know if he was coming back but her only means of getting away was driving. And so um, she was trying to drive with a, a major head um, injury. And she ultimately got to her friend's house and, and told them what had, had occurred. And that's when they called 911 and officers responded to, to um, assist her um, in, in clearing the house and making sure everybody was safe. You mentioned kind of the, the forethought that this person had in terms of really kind of hiding evidence and, you know, for the listeners, you know, we're talking about the early nineties. This is kind of really before DNA became something that people knew about. Right. But I think it plays in later when we get to who the person is in terms of his efforts to elude capture. Um, Definitely. He had some, he had some law enforcement knowledge. He had some, I think it also plays into the language that he used when he was when he was assaulting her in the hallway, um, it it's interesting because you you hear her statement and then later we find out who he is and what his background is and all the pieces just kind of like okay this makes sense this is why he was talking the way he was this is why he used the specific terms that he used 
because right. um, he had some he had some training and those were terms that he had used frequently. It was apparent also in Luetta's case that the suspect had been in the house a little while prior to her arriving home. Uh, and like Sean said in our case also that it appeared that he had already uh, prepared uh, the cords and stuff to tie up Luetta and that had been done prior to her coming home. Um, and also the bath, uh, he also did have Luetta take a bath. And for us, that was always, you know, a concern of how, why would he do that? Like you just mentioned that DNA really wasn't that well known at the time. But of course, with his background, he may have been thinking that. And it was also, this, these were the MOs besides the DNA matching, but the MOs of what he was doing in these cases that, you know, made us believe that they were related. That was another thing is uh, he also duct taped uh, Jerry's eyes and put a bag over her head. So it was a very similar MO. He had an identical um, MO in the fact that he bound their eyes or covered their eyes and put a bag over their head. So this guy's, it's obvious that he's not a novice at this by the way that he perpetuated these crimes, but um, it, it was... It was because of the SAP PD case that, that the rape kit from the victim was sent to the crime lab, right, Sean? Yes, both uh, the, the kit was sent there. And I believe um, Pete Willover had some some amazing forethought and insight into both. He put together, I believe he, he pretty quickly put together that they were they had a similar MO. Right. Um, and I, I believe that's when... Um, the, the cases kind of appeared to have merged like, right. okay, we know we have a similar suspect because of the MO basis. Right. So for the listeners, um, when you mentioned Pete Willover, he is probably one of at least my kind of ideal detectives of SAC PD. He's retired now, but he was one of the major sexual assault detectives in the history of Sacramento Police Department. Um, but the DNA ultimately... Luetta's case, the 1992 case, and the 1994 case of Jerry were linked by DNA. Um, and then at some point, and maybe Mickey, you can at some point we then linked those two cases to a case out of Davis, California, right? Yes. Um, so uh, in Davis, uh, I think I believe it was January 11th, uh, 1994, um, a young a lady named Kristen, who actually attended uh, the University of Davis and uh, lived in the area, um, was out jogging. Now, keep in mind that um, it's interesting because she was 22 years old. And this this case actually doesn't fall within the same MO as, as the SPD case in our case. Um, mm -hmm. Those women were a little older. Um, it occurred in their homes. Um, he broke in and raped them in their homes. Um, this one, Kristen's 22 years old. It was about 9, 9.50, 9.45, 9.50 at night. Um, she went out for a jog. Um, of course, it's dark then, it's January, but she was comfortable in the area. I mean, Davis, you know, it's a university town, um, low crime rate, certainly at that time. Um, she was jogging by an area with uh, construction where they were um, building new, I think, apartment buildings or something. She saw uh, a man uh, go by her. Um, she kind of looked at him and then didn't feel uh, threatened at all, kept jogging. As she got around to one of the other buildings and turned a corner, that same man was standing there. Um, he confronted her right away. Um, she said she thought he used a stun gun um, to um, get control of her. Um, he knocked her to the ground. Uh, he repeatedly hit her in the head. She was fighting at first um, because she was young and, and just knew that she had to get away from him. Um, he eventually uh, uh, tried to rape her. Um, and the big thing for this victim, since she was so young, is that she was a, um, a virgin and she didn't want to have sex until she got married. So this was um, even more tragic for her that this is how this was going to happen. Um, he threatened to cut her throat. Um, he was very violent with her, um, hit her many times, uh, and eventually um, 
he threatened her, uh, said he was going to kill her. She actually tried to talk him out of raping her because she was a virgin. And um, she said, oddly enough, that he kind of uh, like wanted to listen to that. Like he had some empathy for that, which she thought was so weird because he was so violent with her. Um, <clears throat> he had a, a mask on and um, he did uh, rape her. Well, he tried to rape her and eventually um, she was able to talk him down and, and she um, was able to get away. Um, she didn't really see, uh, get a good look at him, but she did know it was a white male suspect. Um, if, if I could add to that is, um, while, uh, while she was talking to him, um, she was pretty, she gave us the, uh, he made her look into his eyes and she was afraid to do that because she didn't want to know who he was. Um, for identification because he was threatening to kill her and he specifically basically threatened to hurt her if she didn't look at him um, and that's when she remembered these distinct uh, blue eyes they're kind of like a greenish blue and um, so he also he, he was also he, he used some sick psychology in the fact that he told her, you never know who I am. Um, you know, I might be the person in the in the grocery store. I might be at your school. Uh, he made some pretty sick comments to her to, to instill fear for the rest of her life. Right. Um, and so prior to him leaving. And um, I, I truly believe that Kristen uh, talked him down. Um, she she has the gift of gab. Um, and she was able to uh, kind of uh, get him uh, calm down and rationalize who she was and that she was a person and um, that she was also trying to um, live morally. And I think that played to some of his upbringing. And I think that played to uh, he was he was uh, raised in a, a pretty strict uh, religious household. And so I think her talking about her religion and um, trying to live morally played to his upbringing. And I think it, he made a connection and that ultimately led to him letting her go and not continuing to assault her. Interesting. Obviously not known at the time, but once, the, once you identified him. So let me just kind of fast forward a little bit to um, 2000 because for the, we know that these cases are linked by DNA. For the listeners and others, um, the statute of limitations at this time, meaning like how long do you have to charge somebody with a crime at the time of these crimes was six years. So we're now getting to 2000, um, the May of nine, no, I'm sorry, the March 1994 case, the SAC PD case, um, the statute of limitation was going to run. And to go back to Pete Willover, the SAC PD detective that was assigned to these, um, Pete called me up in December of 99. He had a couple cases, Mickey, this carry over the same. It's the serial rapist cases. We have the second story rapist running around Sacramento. We have this rapist uh, running around Sacramento. And really Pete kind of asked, is there anything to do on these cases because the statute's about to run. And coincidentally, um, I had read a story in the paper about a, a prosecutor in Wisconsin with this idea about maybe we can charge their DNA since we don't know who they are. And ultimately, not going into too much into the weeds, what we did in Sacramento was we filed the first ever, what we call a John Doe DNA warrant. Uh, this actually was the first case. We then followed that up with the second story rapist case, but we filed this case two days, if my memory's right, uh, before maybe three, before the statute would have run, meaning that had we not done this um, kind of new and novel little tool, uh, these, this person would have really potentially gotten away with these crimes. So that was filed in, I think, March 21st of 2000. That allowed us to, to comply with what we call that statute of limitations deadline. We did charge Luetta's case and we charged that with the torture. And Amy can talk about that later, but torture is kind of a different statute of limitations thing. So that allowed us to preserve this case and move it forward. That the, the, this kind of new idea 
ultimately all went all the way to the California Supreme Court and they decided that it was a lawful way to charge somebody, which, you know, we, I think we're all pretty proud of that we're able to do this now if we need to. Um, so to be clear, so we have the warrant out there. We issued a warrant, um, a complaint charging people versus John Doe. And we, and we put his DNA in the warrant and in the complaint. Um, so that's just kind of out there. And before we get to this kind of idea about genealogy, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get to Amy on that one, but maybe Mickey and, and Sean, like over the years. So we've got this warrant out there. These crimes happened 92 and 94. What would you say was kind of being done by law enforcement? You have DNA, you just don't can't put the face to it yet. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first if you don't mind, Sean. I think uh, the best part, uh, honestly, I mean, if it weren't for Pete, uh, for having the tenacity to always not let things uh, go away and not give up. Um, and then the idea of how, how to preserve the statute of limitations really kept these cases living, I think. Um, but over the years, uh, you know, they were worked, uh, you know, on and off. Uh, we would get tips sometimes, um, just getting lists of people, you know, who were the, the uh, sex offenders at that time. Um, you know, can we find out where they were, were they in custody, just trying to eliminate people or include them in a possible suspect list. Um, I will say though, uh, I think, especially when you have cases that, that are series related like this, that um, whoever's working them doesn't want to let them go and doesn't want, uh, whether we can charge it or not, which obviously is our, our goal, is that we figure out who this person was that assaulted these women. Um, so we did work it for a lot of years, um, following up on tips. Uh, in fact, Kristen, one of the victims, um, prior to us getting uh, doing the genealogy on this case, um, called Sean had mentioned that she remembered the eyes. Uh, there was a person that was arrested uh, on a murder, and she saw his picture a few years back, and the eyes looked similar. And she called to say, "Hey, can you guys look into this guy? Because his eyes look like the suspect." Uh, we were able obviously to eliminate him, but uh, those are the things that we were following up on as much as we could. Yeah, I know I, the SAC PD, we had, uh, our case was in a continuous, a continual uh, evaluation and we had um, our cold case detectives, they would biannually or annually uh, review the case to see if there's any new tips or if any new information, but it was really limited um, and it was just kind of hinging on the DNA. We had good DNA, uh, but it wasn't every year it was getting run in CODIS, but nothing was was hitting. And so it was kind of just evaluating, okay, are we made sure our CODIS check was done this year? Okay, nothing was new, uh, no new tips. And so, the, it, but it was never dropped. It was never just set in a corner and, and gained dust. It always um, was being picked up and evaluated and and when I when I initially got the case, I I look I read through update after update after update of, of of detectives trying to get a new lead in this case, and um and there was just there wasn't um, right. so right right so then so we get to 2018 and this kind of famous case out there uh, resulted in an arrest a guy uh, called the Golden State Killer here in Sacramento East Area rapist. And, and I'm going to kind of bring Amy into this now because Amy, you were one of the lead prosecutors on the Golden State Killer case. And I, I know from that time till now, you've now become kind of an expert on genetic genealogy and the, the value of that new tool. So maybe kind of just give the listeners like a sense of what you've learned through that, the, the Golden State Killer case and, and these other cases that we're now being able to use this tool on. Sure. Well, you know, D'Angelo was arrested in, in April of 2018. That was the first time that genetic genealogy was used to solve a case. And then it just seemed like an avalanche started after that, you know, lots of different cases getting solved across the country. Um, and then in Sacramento, you know, this, this series of cases that these detectives have described today. I know I think it was towards December of, of 2018. So just six or seven months after D'Angelo was arrested, um, Detective McGovern was working with you know, our team at the DA's office to try to solve this case. And it, uh, I think it, was, it, was, it took a little while to solve it, 
Um, but I think then it took even longer to find him um, in this particular scenario. So, but meanwhile, there were just a lot happening. It was very exciting. These new techniques being used to solve these cases that had been cold for you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So it was a very right. exciting time. Very exciting, that's for sure. And conti will continue to be exciting. So um, one of the things mentioned, Amy, is you mentioned CODIS. Um, just for the listeners, when we talk about DNA cases, uh, CODIS stands for Convicted Offender DNA Index System. Basically, you know, people that are convicted of crimes or felony, people that are arrested for felonies have to give their DNA. And that's how we're able, ultimately, when you run the DNA, you, you look to see if it matches anybody. And, and over the years, obviously, on this case, it didn't match anybody. Same thing with D'Angelo. We didn't have any matches to any convicted offenders. So that's why, you know, this new tool became so critical. Um, let me kind of, let me go back to your comment about, you know, this particular case. Um, and you mentioned Sean and um, Mickey and Sean, had you guys ever actually done genealogy cases before this case or what was your experience or knowledge that you had leading up to this this particular case we had actually just come off of the uh norcal uh rapist case so uh we had uh i had assisted uh our detectives in in the norcal and so we had some familiarity with that um and so uh, i understood the process but um, it, it was, we, we watched D'Angelo get taken down and then we assisted on getting Roy Waller and then, uh, and then this came, this case came, uh, popped up. So we were pretty excited, uh, or I was, uh, I was pretty excited to be able to, to get involved in, uh, to try genealogy. So, um, it was pretty exciting. Right. Vicki, how about you? Yeah, up to this point, I had not, this was the first case that I actually uh, got involved in the genealogy. Um. And it was so different because I had done my own genealogy and worked on my own uh, heritage, but it was not uh, anything like what this is. Okay. So maybe if, if one of you can kind of walk through, and I don't want to go into the specifics of this particular genealogy, but just the general, and maybe Amy, if you don't mind, or Sean, any one of you, just kind of give us the listeners a, an overview of how does this work? I, I can speak to that if, if, that, if that's okay. Um, the, basically the, the DNA sample or for the suspect sam sample is, um, submitted and we get a full genome and basically, um, uh, we get all the, the DNA cursors, uh, for the entire, normally, uh, CODIS is, is only, I believe 18 points or, or 13 20, points. 25, I think. Yeah. yeah. 25 now. Oh, right. and, <laughs> it keeps getting more and more. And, um. But this is a full genome, and so um, it's sent off, and we get uh, three large files of data, which is then sent and condensed um, to where it can be inputted into a genealogy uh, site. And so, uh, in this case, uh, Mantufel's uh, genealogy was inputted into the site, uh, which allows us to see the closest uh, relative match, and um, and that's that's measured on what they call a cinemorgan, which is the higher the the number of cinemorgans, the closer you are to a relative match. And and for the listeners, and, and you guys correct me, Amy, Sean, we're talking about seven hundred thousand to a million points of comparison correct. versus what we have in forensic world is which is about twenty five, which is still very 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 helpful. But that's the power of using genealogy is the number of points of comparison, right? Right, Correct. it's much more magnified look at someone's DNA. Okay, so just kind of in general, one of you upload a bad guy's DNA to a genealogy site, you get information back, and that's when you start building family trees, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay, so just to kind of get to, the, to this point, at some point, after you all were working on this case, building family trees, someone becomes a, what I would call a person of interest that maybe this is the guy, right? Yes, in, in February of 2019 uh, was the first time that a particular suspect uh, was identified. Okay. Through the use of genetic genealogy. 
And who wants to reveal the big reveal here? Who was the, what was the name? <laughs> Sean, how about you? Well, I, I remember getting the phone call from Kirk. Uh, I, was, I was actually following up in, uh, and we were on a drive from San Francisco and I got the call from Kirk that, hey, uh, Monica found a link. We have a common name. At this point, uh, so Kirk and Monica. Why don't you tell them who, tell the listeners who Kirk and Monica are. Oh, uh, so Kirk Campbell and Monica Chukowski with the Sacramento District Attorney's Office. Um, they are amazing. Uh, the two of them have, have done phenomenal work. And um, they were kind of the lead in the genealogy uh, uh, building of the trees and kind of gave guidance uh, to me as to I, I was working on one tree. They were working on another tree, which we ended up uh, we had maternal and paternal trees with over 1200 names um, okay. at the end. And so Kirk called me and said, Hey, we've got a common name. And I knew what that meant. That meant that our trees had matched at some point, And that led to uh, Mark Mantufel's parents. Okay. And so we, from that point on, we had a name and we had an idea of who our suspect was. Mickey, at what point were you brought into this? Were you already involved in this part or you then got involved later once the name came out? Um, no, I, I did start right away with the uh, in the first couple of meetings where we started the genealogy uh, work. Um, I think we all kind of worked separate a little bit and there was get together meetings. Um, uh, but I did keep, uh, Sean and I didn't work that much uh, close together after those first few meetings, um, but I did work with uh, Kirk and Monica. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was just so exciting to to actually have somebody that you can look at and say, well, let's either eliminate them or confirm they're our suspect, which is, you know, that's our goal. Right. So um, that was so exciting to be part of that for the first time. Because now I've done so many of them, but I'll always remember this was the first one that I, right. I got to be part of. So let me ask this. So once this kind of name comes out there, Mark Mantufel, what, what do you think was the most um, significant piece of information you learned about him at the time when you got his name when you start, I assume you start doing research on the guy, right? Right. And, uh, one of a great, uh, tool for us in investigations is just to Google the name, put the name into a, a, you know, and see what's out there and see what pops up. And, um, we had his driver's license. We were able to figure out his age and everything. So we knew what he looked like. And one of the first things that I did was, was enter his name in the internet and, um, it popped up with the Bureau of Prisons and showed him to be uh, an assistant warden in uh, Miami, Florida. And that yeah. was pretty shocking. Yeah, that's kind of like the whole Angelo big reveal when we found out he was a police officer. And for me, when that happened, that was kind of like uh, an aha moment. So, um, so kind of walk us through. I mean, the thing that I think I've learned about this after listening to you all and looking at the investigation is this is a guy that spent almost three decades trying to elude capture. And I think it would be interesting for the listeners to understand once you started to really do a deep dive, Amy, you were very involved in this at this point because you knew what was going on and you knew that this was the person of interest. But um, I guess the first step is you got to make sure he's not just the guy in the tree, right? You got to make sure he's actually the guy. So what did that entail? How did you, how did you, confirm he's the guy? Um, well, we were able to uh, locate uh, a potential relative and uh, Sean and his team went uh, and collected a surreptitious sample, uh, an abandoned you know, sample of DNA uh, nice. from this person we believe to be a relative. Um, they brought that sample to the crime lab. They were able to do the traditional STR DNA testing and confirmed that we were on the right track, that um, this person was a relative um, of Mark Mantufel. And that that DNA was the same as the person, well, the relative had the same DNA uh, of the person that you're interested in as being the serial rapist, right? Correct, that's okay. correct. And then uh, by doing that testing, we were able to confirm we were on the right track. And then ultimately um, that led uh, you know, directly to Mark Mantufel. Um, but the problem was, was that uh, we could not find Mark Mantufel for some period of time. And I'll let Sean talk about that. He was directly involved with that. 
Yeah, when we, we first started running his information and we used some open source data sources and it was P.O. box after P.O. box after P.O. box. And it kind of bounced down to Southern California and it went over to Oklahoma and it was all P.O. boxes. And uh, when I ran the records for the P.O. boxes, it came back to uh, trailer parks. It came back to hotels. So, uh, it, you know, he wasn't listing his true address or where he was living at. Um, and it kind of bounced down to, to Florida, which was consistent with uh, seeing him uh, being the, the photo of the Bureau of Prisons. Um, and so uh, we started running in. We tried to, to find any phone numbers, any kind of associations, and it was blank. It was there was nothing there uh, other than the P.O. boxes. Um, and then one of my coworkers in, in uh, Detective Massingale, he had run into he started working uh, registration. He had a, a prior registration for a vehicle out of Oklahoma, and uh, he did some digging and found out that it was sold to kind of like a scrap company. And so he made just that phone call to the scrap company. And interestingly enough, the lady on the other end of the phone remembered the interaction with Mantufel uh, because it was so strange. Um, he basically called this company and said, I want to sell you my vehicle, but I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> and they're like, that's eight hours odd. away. Yeah, that's yeah, odd. <laughs> it, was, it was really odd. And so he's like, well, I want to sell it there in his vehicle was registered out of Oklahoma. So the lady's like, okay, um, well, we'll send a tow truck out there, but it's, you know, it's going to be eight hours to get there. And the lady said he sold the car really cheaply. And so that's what stuck out in her memory. And interestingly enough, the company scans all the records. So every time they do an interaction, they scan all the records. And wow. part of this transaction, he actually had to show up to sign papers. So they sent a tow truck eight hours away to Atlanta, Georgia, picked up the vehicle. And then three days later, he showed up at the, the scrapyard and signed over the vehicle to the, the, to the lady. And interestingly enough, the, the pickup address was uh, Mark's girlfriend's house, currently in, that was in Atlanta. And throughout these interactions, he had uh, given the scrapyard his cell phone number. So there we had a direct like link to um, trying to figure out where he was at. Um, and ultimately what happened was we found out those, we pulled those records and he had shut that phone off after selling the car. So then we had to, we had to do some digging and figure out who he had called. And, right. then, and then from there kind of figure out the new number. And we were able to do that. So, so let me ask this. And I mean, it sounds to me, and, and first of all, he, this is a dude that's living off the grid, basically everything he can to live off the grid. Right. So do you think any, one of the three of you, do you think that the arrest of the Golden State Killer in, in April of 2018 played any role in his mind in terms of, or do you think he was just a guy that, you know, was a, uh, smart and just trying to avoid capture but do you think that the arrest of d'angelo had anything to do with his living off the grid i i have to say i think that he's always been like this i think when he he did the assaults uh, that we eventually um, identified him for uh having some law enforcement experience being a, a criminal justice major at school gave him some ideas i mean i think that's how he eluded capture in the 90s you know, right. mask, uh, trying to, you know, cover his face, his hands, uh, not leave prints, um, even washing down the victims at this time that, you know, most people would never have thought of doing that. So I think, uh, yeah, the Golden State Killer case probably heightened his awareness and probably made him think that eventually they're gonna get me. But I think he knew this all along, that he was just smart enough to elude capture and identification because he, he took precautions to do that.
Sean, Amy, you guys were working hand in hand on warrants <laughs> and things like that to kind of just lead the listeners through like the capture of this serial rapist. So we ultimately, we ended up working with the FBI because we were dealing with a suspect that was out of our state. And in Atlanta, we had him tracked down to um, a, a, an address in Decatur, uh, Georgia. And so um, ultimately, we worked with the FBI and they they put on a surveillance team on him and monitored him. And they were ultimately able to get a surreptitious sample um, from him. Um, and I remember getting that phone call. Uh, the FBI guys were extremely excited uh, because they sat on him. He was pretty reclusive. Uh, he didn't leave that often. He'd only really kind of go to um, the convenience store and, and go back to the home. And even the neighbors later on, they they said, hey, we really never saw him. We saw him rarely. Um, so to get that surreptitious sample was pretty big for the FBI. And then uh, that was sent to Sacramento in in. Uh, processed by the Sacramento County Crime Lab and ultimately came up with a direct match. And so from there, we worked on getting getting an arrest warrant. Um, we ultimately coordinated with the FBI to go in June, the last part of June, and um, we had scheduled with them to do an arrest at, at the girlfriend's house. Uh, they had continual so surveillance on him and knew that he was there. Um, and so that's when the the two teams, the the, the sheriff department team and the, the SAC PD team flew over with uh, with Amy Holiday. Um, and we ultimately um, worked on getting him arrested with the assistance of the FBI. So I mean, from a legal point of view, did you have to work with the Georgia authorities in terms of warrants and all those kinds of things? We did. Definitely. And we really appreciated Amy being with <laughs> us because ultimately uh, we, we had a lot of court that we had to do with uh, with Georgia and having Amy there. And I think Amy could speak to um, the, the whole process with with working with the, the Georgia court. It was a really interesting process. We were on a, a red eye flight uh, to meet up with Sean's team and the FBI, hoping to be there in time for the arrest. And I was, we were on our flight and unfortunately somebody had a medical emergency on our flight. So we had an emergency landing in, in Memphis, which delayed wow. us. And I felt bad for the person, but at the same time, really wanted to get to Atlanta to be there in time for the arrest. Um, we barely made it. Um, I flew, you know, dressed for court because I knew we were going to have to hit the ground running. Um, I met Sean at the, at the DA's office there in um, DeKalb County, Georgia. And really, you know, ultimately our warrants had to be reworked to comply with what was required um, in Atlanta. Um, so Sean and I did that together with the uh, DA there and their chief investigator. And they got us in front of a judge just a couple hours later. And keep in mind, this was a judge that knew nothing about this case and nothing about investigative genetic genealogy. And it really, I think it's fair to say, Sean, that it blew his mind. <laughs> Uh, and he had a lot of questions about, you know, what we were doing and how we did it um, and ultimately signed the warrants and, um, and, and Mantufel was taken into custody by then and then he was interviewed and. Um, and you had the sheriff's office was with you, right? You had detectives, uh, was it Michelle Hendricks from the SAC Sheriff's Office went along with you as well? Yes, we had Michelle Hendricks and Amber Lawrence from the Sheriff's Department along with Sean and his team from Sacramento Police Department. So it was. It was quite something. It was really a group effort to get it done. Um, and also um, Garrett Hamilton from Yolo County DA's office was instrumental as well, um, helping get us a warrant um, for the Davis case uh, and get that set at no bail um, so that we could ensure that Mantufel was gonna be held in Atlanta until the extradition proceedings. So you mentioned just kind of a little bit in passing that you know getting a statement from him and um, just Sean, I assume you were involved in that. Just tell us kind of what, did he talk? Did he say anything? Did he admit it? Well, ultimately he, um, he wanted, he was willing to talk to us, but he wasn't willing to discuss um, his involvement. Uh, he pretty much denied, um, but he was pretty quiet throughout the whole thing. He really played out wanting to know what we had on him. And when we presented him the DNA evidence, I think that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin for him um he he was kind of it, it seemed like he was he was playing it through his mind and 
after we, I presented him a report, a lab report that showed that he he matched the suspect and um, he was in fact the suspect. And uh, once Michelle and I exited the interview room, he put his head on the table. He looked at the report and then he just put his head on the table over the report and was like that for about 20 minutes. Yeah. Like, yeah, the gig is up, right? Yeah. So um, before you guys did the interview, did you know much about his personality? I mean, Mickey, you made a reference to him going to Sac State. I mean, did you know, had you done a deep dive like before the interview to like, what's this guy like? What's he all about? I mean, what did you know about him walking into that room? Well, Prior to, we had some information regarding um, some prior law enforcement experience at a Rotary Park. Um, We knew that he worked for the Bureau of Prisons. I knew that he had at least a master's at Sac State in criminology. Um, And so, uh, or sorry, criminal justice. Um, And so I knew that he had knowledge of law enforcement. I knew he had knowledge of the, the criminal justice system. So Going into it, I was actually kind of surprised that he didn't immediately invoke. Um, but then again, I think he was kind of playing the chess game in his mind to find out which incident we were talking about. Right. Because I don't think he knew what he was being arrested for. And um, I I don't think it stopped at just these three incidents. So I think he was kind of playing the game but to figure out which uh, victims we were talking about. Um, once we kind of disclosed the um, what crimes we were arresting him for he just ultimately shut down so um, now, now you guys mentioned when you um when the arrest was done uh, was there anything that you found in his possession that that kind of supported this whole thing that he was always going to try to elude capture yes during the search of his residence he had kind of a room that had his closet uh, he lived pretty minimally he didn't have a lot of belongings inside um, of his girlfriend's apartment. Um, and there was what we call a go bag, a bag that you can just grab and go. And it had a passport. It had about, about $10,000. Um, it had other identifications that he had. Um, and like, uh, like a change of clothes. It was like, it was just like, he could grab this bag at any moment, get in a car and go. So he, it definitely looked like he was prepared to, to take off at any moment. And so uh, he also had in his wallet a checklist of any time he did anything out in the world. He basically it said, like, don't use your Social Security number. Um, he had no, no email, no, um, you know, don't use your act like use PO box. Like he had this checklist of what he, anytime he was involved with something outside of his house, he would make sure that he was trying to stay off the grid. Well, thank goodness for genetic genealogy because that go back was never deployed. Um, so let me get to you mentioned Sean, and I don't know if this was before the, the capture that he had had this master's degree in criminal justice. Was there anything about it that you learned about him that kind of solidified uh that this is this is a serial rapist type of guy yeah definitely uh i was contacted shortly after his arrest and his name was put out there um our our phone our phone started ringing about people who had contact with him and one of him was a mentor professor uh who uh, guided him through his master's degree um, and when I talked to him about what the, his thesis was for his master's, it was on victimology and a victim's response to trauma. Uh, I tried to find that paper and it was interesting. Um, he alluded to that in some of his jail calls, uh, regarding, you know, go to the, go to the Sacramento state, go get my, you know, find my paper to other family members. And so um, I was never able to find that actual uh, thesis, but based on the conversation that I had with one of his mentor professors, it it seemed like um, he had kind of focused his his paperwork on victimology and the victim's response, which was kind of weird given the yeah. fact of he was assaulting these these ladies. So it, he's obviously brought back, Amy, right? Brought back from Georgia. Yes, he. Um agreed when when presented with the choice of of coming back you know with us on a on a five-hour flight 
or taking a 60 day bus ride across the country, he elected to waive his rights and be extradited back to Sacramento. Okay, so kind of walk us through, you're the lead prosecutor on this case now. Um, kind of just walk us through how it got to the point he ultimately pled guilty, right? Yes, he did. Kind of um, just explain that process. So he's returned to Sacramento and he's arraigned just a couple of days after we get back. And one of the really neat things about the arraignment is not only were the victims there, but we had, you know, the the former detectives, the retired people. You know, Mickey was there, um, Donna Simmons, Pete Willover, Sean, you know, and so we had the the detective, the original detectives, the new detectives, the victims, their families. It was really a special time um, for them to, you know, come together um, and and see him for the first time and know who he was. So we went through the, uh, you know, kind of the normal prosecution process, getting ready for preliminary hearing. Um, we had met with the victims and I knew when I met Jerry, I knew that she was, you know, more fragile. Um, she's a little bit older and I knew that there was some health concerns. And as we went on with the process, we got to November of 2018 and Jerry 19, contacted uh, Sean 20, and I. 20? I'm sorry. No, it would have been November of 2019. So let me start over. So in November of 2019, uh, Jerry contacted um, Sean and I and our victim advocate, Mei Lin, and let us know that she was having some serious health problems. And so the decision was made to do what we call a conditional examination. And that's where you, um, you, know, you apply to the court, make a motion, um, indicate what the problems are. And there is a code section that allows you to um, examine the victim or witness as if you were in court. So the defense is there, the defendant is there, we video it, we audio record it as well so that we can preserve it for future use if the person is not alive at the time of trial. And we knew that her health, you know, it was serious. So we did the conditional exam. It took three days to do it because we had to do it in half days. She was, you know, had a trouble breathing, uh, had trouble getting through it. Um, she was so strong, it was incredible. And she remembered everything like it was yesterday. And um, she did a fantastic job and the defendant saw all of that. And, you know, and I think that it made great strides towards ultimately resolving the case. And um, unfortunately, you know, that was in November of 2019, Jerry passed away in February of uh, 2020. So just three months after the conditional examination. Very sad. Very sad. Um, so at what point then did, did, was, was the plea? What happened? Um, you know, the matter went, went forward and, um, you know, eventually the defense and I were, you know, in, in touch and eventually they approached me and said, you know, he's interested in resolving the case short of trial. Um, and I think, again, that conditional exam had a, a lot to do with that after seeing her and hearing her testify. So um, ultimately in October of 2020, he pled guilty to um, the sexual assaults and sodomy uh, as well, involving uh, the two incidents with Jerry and Luetta and was sentenced. Um, Luetta was there. She made a, a fantastic victim impact statement and Jerry was represented by you know, her niece and her best friend um, and some other friends as well. So it was just a really powerful moment um, for these ladies. And then uh, we went on to Yolo County. He pled guilty in Yolo County as well for the sexual assault of Kristen. And um, we have all attended the judgment and sentencing there as well in December of 2020. Did he, what was his sentence? Ultimately, he was sentenced to uh, 29 years in state prison and his maximum exposure had been 35 years. So it was close to the maximum exposure, but very different than what would have been available as sentencing right. guidelines had that happened currently. And, and that really was frustrating for me um, mm -hmm. that someone was going to get you know, 29 years for these three horrific, violent sexual assaults of these ladies. Um, that was probably the hardest part for right. me to, uh, to wrap my head around because it just after doing so many sexual assault prosecutions and seeing people, you know, face very serious consequences as they should, this, that just 
didn't sit right with me. And that's, it's still a struggle to this day for me to wrap my head around that. Well, for the listeners, um, the, you know, the law changed in November of 94. So this, you know, Jerry's crime happened in, in March of 94. And in November 94, the voters, I believe the legislature passed a law called one strike. So now we have these greater tools, right? He would have gotten life. Right. Um, had, well, and he would have, his... you know, he had all these different aggravating factors, lying in wait, tying them up, um, threatening them with a knife. All these different factors would have resulted in a sentence in the, you know, hundreds of years instead of a couple of decades. Right. So Mickey, I'm going to go to you. So you, I assume you were at the, the pleas and the sentencings and, the, and all of that. Um, just kind of walk us through your, your feelings at the time. Well, it was amazing to be part of this. Obviously, I wasn't um, involved in the initial investigation of this, these crimes, but um, when I did become involved and, and just um, knowing Luetta, um, I never met Jerry, but I, I worked with Luetta quite a bit and with Kristen, the other victim in Davis. And um, uh, as Amy said, you know, Luetta did a great job at her um, victim impact statement. Um, during that hearing. And uh, these, these women, I mean, I just can't believe the courage, the resiliency um, and the strength uh, to survive this event and then live all these years with it, not knowing you know, if this man would ever be caught. Um, you know, Luetta, it's uh, kind of a, a, it just shows her um, strength is she still lives in the same house that this occurred in. And a lot of women would have moved out of there because of the, you know, the thoughts of what happened in that hallway when you first come home, putting the alarm system on. Obviously it didn't work in this case, you know, all those things. Um, but Luetta told me, uh, I'm not gonna move. This man controlled me for several hours and it was horrible, but I wasn't gonna let him control the rest of my life. And so, she said, I love my house. I'm staying here. This is my neighborhood. And I mean, just, just listening to that, this person talk like this after they've been through so much, uh, she's just an amazing woman and so, so strong. And, and so is Kristen, you know, just moving on with their life and, and going forward, but never forgetting, obviously. I remember both women and Marie telling me, because um, they both lived in there in the same home. And I remember both of them telling me that, you know, I bought this house with my own money and it's mine and he's not going to take that from me. And that was really stood out for me. Just amazing. You know, Sean, um, you mentioned that one of the things that he said to Jerry during the assault was, I think something to the effect of, I might be the guy standing in line at the grocery store. And I think it's interesting. And I wonder if that's, you know, it's obviously a fear tactic, but then you see this person then go on to write a master's degree on victimology and you, you wonder if that was part of his plan was just to instill this fear because he he understood the trauma that he was inflicting on these women definitely i think i he had some psychological insight and he knew exactly what he was saying to these victims when he made these comments and especially just prior to leaving he made comments that he I'm pretty sure he knew was going to instill fear in the, in their lives for the rest of their lives. Um, just the, the kind of the stalking nature. I know where you, I know where you live, you know, I live right. down the street. Um, I could be the guy at the grocery store and, and that did And some of the victims, they did have issues with, um, you know, seeing uh, specifically one victim saw a man wink at her at a grocery store and they dropped the milk. That they oh, were holding wow. because it just instilled instant fear in them um because could that be the guy right so right. It, it was just it, sick in nature for sure so how did you feel when you were there at the sentencing i mean you know having been engaged in this and coming together and all that it was pretty powerful um to just to see the victims and the response to to seeing him being sentenced to seeing him cowering there at his table, um, it was pretty powerful. And I was just super honored to be a part of the investigation and, and to be a part of seeking justice and getting this person behind bars. All right. 
So I just want to kind of wrap it up here since uh, we're kind of about our limit here, but just ask you, I'll start with, with you, Amy, like what's your takeaway on this case? No, my takeaway is that um, the power of an investigative genetic genealogy is, is solving these cases that, you know, we never thought we would solve and getting justice for victims that had, you know, had some of them have given up hope. Mm -hmm. And so being able to um, seek justice and find justice um, for these victims of crime is so powerful. And I'm just so thankful um, how this case came together, the timing of it all, you know, for Jerry and her family, and was just really proud to be a part of this amazing team. Excellent. Uh, Sean, how about you? My takeaway was just the power of um, having the support from the, the DA's office and and uh, coming together between all the agencies to work together to, to put this investigation together. I think everybody had a key part in it um, and just working together as a team it's just amazing to see and with the fbi we had a phenomenal uh investigators with the fbi that assisted us and um and everybody when involved was truly dedicated to to getting this resolved and and, and getting justice for these victims so um my biggest takeaway is just the power of of com coming together and working for a a, a joint cause was pretty powerful. Yeah, I call that oftentimes team justice. So you right. all got to be part of team justice. So Mickey, what about you? What's your final takeaway on this one? Um, well, there's just a couple of things. I, one thing I wanted to say is, I, I think as investigators, we were always led to believe um, the information out there was serial rapists, serial murderers can't stop. Taught to believe that serial rapists and serial murderers um, never stop doing their crimes. How can they control themselves? They can't. And I think now we know that uh, in the East Area Rapist case, uh, in this rape series, um, I think we believe that, yeah, at some point they did stop doing their crimes. That's a, that's a real key for me because I always believe that they couldn't control that. Um, and the other thing was um, just never giving up, never quitting. Um, you know, we, we're not gonna solve every case that we work um, and investigate, but um, I think that we give hope to families, uh, victims and, and their families um, when we continue to work as hard as we do on these. I have a sign in my office that says 365 new days, 365 new chances. And that's how I look at the cases. And I think every day we have a chance to solve one. That's what I feel like when we do, we work together as a team like this, it's amazing. Yeah, I think for me that it's just another example of the the power of passion and persistence, uh, you know, by law enforcement, by using these tools, the power of investigative genetic genealogy is really is changing the world. So I wanna thank all of you, um, Mickey, Sean, Amy, for this incredible work you did on this case. To the listeners out there, um, thank you for listening. Uh, to hear more episodes like this one, please visit InsideCrimeFiles.com. And thank you for listening. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.